Welcome to the Physics Buzz Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. Today we're going to be talking with author David Kaiser about his book, How the Hippies Saved Physics. The physicist Richard Feynman once famously said, I'm fairly certain that no one understands quantum mechanics. It's true that quantum mechanics is a very difficult subject. And yet it has this undeniable allure, not just to physicists, but to the general public. That's because quantum mechanics also has a philosophical side. This very difficult and complex area of physics also has implications about the nature of existence and our perception of reality. For example, there's a concept in quantum mechanics called wave-particle duality. If you imagine a particle, your intuition tells you that it should be a contained, well-defined object, like a very tiny basketball. And sometimes that's how a particle behaves. But depending on how you measure it, a particle can also behave as a wave. And quantum mechanics tells us that it's actually both. A particle is a particle and a wave. This totally defies what we see in large-scale objects. Humans and basketballs don't fluctuate between being a solid object and a wave. And yet this property is inherent to all of the particles that make up matter. So if we're made of these subatomic particles that have this wave-particle duality, what does that say about our own existence? Is this idea that we are solid objects just an illusion? And then it brings up a lot of other questions, like if I can measure a particle as either a particle or a wave, depending on how I measure it, then has everything we've ever measured been altered in some way because of our interaction with it? And does that mean that the world looks different when we aren't interacting with it? Have we been perceiving reality with a bias all along? These philosophical questions are what make quantum mechanics so enticing. In the 1920s and 30s, when quantum mechanics was first heating up, the major minds of the field, like Einstein, Bohr, Heisenberg, and Schrodinger, they were all working on the concrete aspects of quantum mechanics, the calculations and the experiments. But they were also sitting back and exploring these deeper questions, the sort of existential implications of their work. But in the 1940s and the 1950s, investigation into these areas of quantum mechanics slowed down significantly. In those decades, the U.S. mindset was dominated by war, first World War II and then the Cold War. In physics, there was a very strong emphasis on practical tangible applications. People were developing nuclear power. They were competing in the space race. People just didn't have the same amount of time to ponder the philosophical implications of quantum physics. In addition, university physics enrollment went up exponentially after World War II. Class sizes grew and teachers just really didn't have the time or resources to get into the philosophical stuff. The generation of physicists who came out of that era produced incredible technologies and did absolutely amazing work, but they just weren't philosophers. But then things changed again, and not necessarily in a good way for physics. 
And this is where we meet Dr. David Kaiser. Uh, my name is David Kaiser. I am a professor at MIT. Uh, I teach uh, both in the physics department and um, in the, the department head for the program in science, technology, and society, where I work in the history science. Kaiser is also an author, and his most recent book is titled How the Hippies Saved Physics. It explores how, in the 1970s, physics sort of came back around to studying the philosophical aspects of quantum physics. And this was partly prompted by some major changes that the field of physics had to undergo. In the 1950s and 60s, physics had a lot of money and a lot of people. But in the 70s, well, basically the bottom fell out. Well, it was, it, was a, it was a lot of things kind of coalescing at once. And so one thing that changed very rapidly and took many physicists by surprise across the country was a kind of reversal of fortunes. So this Cold War boom coming out of uh, World War II and then the Sputnik sort of uh, emergency, as is often seen in the United States, those things had ramped up funding for physics in many fields, ramped up enrollments, had ramped up the demand for young physicists. So the job market, in fact, grew even quicker than the number of students in physics, even as the number of students at the PhD level was growing exponentially. And all those things crashed around the same time in the early 70s. Uh, the job market completely crashed so that by 1971, there were more than 1,000 PhDs in physics applying for about 50 jobs in the field. And that's how badly the, the market had, had collapsed uh, in that time period. Funding was, was cut you know, by 30% or, or so within a short amount of time. Very deep cuts. So, so the landscape for doing physics and for becoming a young physicist changed very rapidly in a very short you know, amount of time. This difficult time made life hard for quite a few physicists, but it didn't stop them from pursuing what they loved. The, the book then sort of zooms into this group. They call themselves the Fundamental Physics Group. They spelled physics with an F. They were very playful. Uh, and that was made up of about you know, 10 core members uh, who had PhDs from some of the most elite physics programs in the country, you know, PhDs from Columbia and Stanford and, uh, you know, uh, the UC system and so on. I mean, really well-trained, um, but who, who kind of whose main fault was graduating when the bottom fell out of the job market. They were, they simply couldn't follow a kind of career path that had come to seem normal over the, over the years since World War II. That was very suddenly interrupted. And so they were kind of cast adrift, and they, as I talked about in the book, they kind of bumble along and find each other in the, California, the San Francisco Bay Area around Berkeley. Uh, and they discover this kind of shared passion for the interpretation of quantum theory, the foundations of quantum theory, uh, that had been you know, more or less pushed to the sidelines of their formal training, but had been part of what got them excited about doing physics in the first place. As kids, they read popular books. They wanted to do physics the way they thought Einstein and Bohr and Heisenberg had considered these big, juicy, kind of what-does-it-all-mean kinds of questions. So that's what they did. The Fundamental Physics Group got together and studied these interpretations of quantum physics. In doing so, the group actually drew attention to what, at the time, was a very obscure paper published in 1964 by a man named John Bell. The theorem presented in the paper has been known as Bell's theorem or quantum entanglement. If it sounds familiar, that's because Bell's theorem is now a pillar of modern physics. As you might know, entanglement starts with a pair of particles. The pair is produced by some event. These are actually rather common events in nature, so these entangled particles are actually produced all the time. Anyway, the two particles are linked together in a very special way. And what Bell showed was if the equations of quantum mechanics are right, 
then there seemed to be an inescapable conclusion, and that was that each of those particles alone simply could not be assumed to have its own complete set of properties. So what that meant was if you measured particle A, the answer you got would in part depend on what was measured of particle B. And that sounds strange enough, but then Bell pushed it to the extreme and said, what if those two particles were a galaxy apart, were arbitrarily far apart? He found there seemed to be an instantaneous, much faster than light, literally instant, um, connection between those two particles, these entangled particles, such that instead of tickling one here or making some measurements, say spin of that electron along the x-axis, whatever mundane measurement we chose to make of one particle should instantly affect what we found on particle B, even if that were, you know, a galaxy away. And that sounds, first of all, that, that cuts to the quick of this kind of quantum weirdness, right? Baseballs don't behave that way, or sort of ordinary macroscopic objects don't have this kind of long-distance correlation that defies the speed of light and, uh, or common sense. Uh, so on the one hand, it sounds just like way, the ways in which quantum theory departs from our intuitions about the world. It has that kind of juicy, interpretive, foundational kind of, you know, nugget to it. Once again, Bell's theorem has now become a pillar of modern physics. It's a central, exactly right, it's a central part. It's, you know, in the opening pages of some of our best recent textbooks, it's the backbone for the entire world of quantum information science, for uh, quantum computing. People use these so-called Bell states, these entangled states, all the time. For quantum encryption, that's sort of step one. It's, it's, you know, it's entered the practical world of gadgeteering. It's actually, people engineer this stuff now, let alone worry about its deeper implications. They do both. And it is, you know, it's among the most cited articles in the history of physics these days. It just took a long time to get there. And it was groups like this group in California that I focused on that were among the first to show any interest in it at all and to really dig in and, in fact, as I say, to dominate, you know, publications in the early years before this became a, a common topic. They were really mesmerized by it. So these people were very well trained. They were highly capable physicists but they were also not working at established traditional physics institutions. So they sort of challenged the idea of the traditional career path for physicists. At the same time, they weren't totally cut off from traditional physics. Kaiser says they were in communication with well-established physicists, and they carried on a dialogue with those physicists about many of these topics. And part of what is so fascinating about this story is how the cultural ideas of the time influenced the work of these counterculture physicists, but also of physicists in the mainstream. So part of what I really enjoyed about working on the book was, was just what you say. This was, this was a very particular moment in American culture, let alone in the, in the history of ideas about physics, which has its own interest, you know, fascination. But it really was this kind of bizarre-seeming moment, at least when we look back, the kind of tie-dye, you know, uh, bell-bottom era. And, um, and that really, and, 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 and when we look back, the sort of headquarters of that scene in the United States really was the San Francisco Bay Area, right where these folks you know, were, were based, where they had made their way. And so uh, a lot of the f most fun parts for me for the book were trying to figure out, you know, this kind of cultural embedding. And so they were... Um, they were surrounded by this kind of early flickering of what would be called the New Age, interest in mind reading and ESP, uh, in you know UFOs and tarot cards. Now, it's not that each of these physicists was deeply interested in that. Some of them were. Some of them got pretty interested. Some of them weren't. Some changed their mind. But they, were, they, but they couldn't avoid it. 
Uh, they couldn't avoid the topic. And so this is a time when even a big mainstream newspaper would run front-page articles about experiments on mind reading and what were they finding. Was it was this a real effect? Uh, as we now know, many of those experiments, by the way, were funded by the CIA, which only came to light uh, much later. The idea was if mind reading were possible, uh, then could that be used to basically spy on the Soviets from afar, you know, which would, which would be great if it would have worked. Um, and so part of what this Bay Area group that I was working on, some of them got involved as theorist consultants to these experiments uh, to try to account for what looked like, what some certainly claims to be uh, results for sort of, you know, positive results for parapsychology. Could those be accounted for by first principles, you know, from quantum theory like Bell's theorem? If Bell's theorem is all about strange connections across a distance that had no classical explanation, was that so different from claims that people could be receiving sort of faint signals from someone else's mind a, a far place away? So again, not every member of the group uh, b- bought into that. Some certainly were very interested in that. Some still are. But it was, it was sort of an unavoidable part of the scene. And it wasn't just these non-traditional physicists who were embracing this new age hippie culture that was springing up mainstream physicists were also using it as a way to attract the attention of students. And that was partly a way, on some physicists' part, very explicitly so, to, to try to show students, or sort of disaffected counterculture students and so on, that physics wasn't just a tool of the Pentagon, that physics was a tremendously exciting cultural endeavor with you know, deep insights into the world. So it was, it was not merely about making things or being tied to a kind of Cold War state. In the past few decades, these, these philosophical ruminations brought about by quantum physics have found their way into dozens of popular books. They're used as a way to entice young students and get the public to care about what might seem like very abstract physics ideas. So if you've ever read one of those books or listened to a lecture or watched a TV show about these things, if those questions have ever grabbed you, you kind of have the hippies to thank. Even working physicists now embrace these ideas as part of the mainstream. It, it seems like there's a, there's a different balance, maybe a kind of maybe there's an equilibrium that's been achieved in more recent years. So that it's not that every PhD in physics has to worry about you know late night thoughts about the deep meaning of quantum theory, and I'm not suggesting that everyone should worry about that in any sustained way. But that those who do worry about that or want to worry about that, it's it's acknowledged that that is a legitimate part of physics. And now I think many people have recognized chasing interests like that has led to, first of all, brilliant new experiments, which do play a role in the book. And I, I talk about some of the first experiments to try to test Bell's theorem and the generations of improving that. And then even beyond that, to, to genuinely worldly practical things like quantum encryption, perhaps like quantum computing within, you know, the, within the near term. And so there's a, there's a sense in which these deep philosophical sounding questions about foundations are, have a legitimacy. They have a place at the table and they're part of the whole range of ways of doing physics. They're not, they're not quite as, as sort of um, pushed off to the margins or denigrated the way they had, had been for some time. David Kaiser's book is called How the Hippies Saved Physics. It's due out in paperback on July 16th. That's all for the Physics Buzz podcast. I'm Callie Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more Physics Buzz.